Good morning. Uh, if you're a visitor here this morning, we're grateful that you are with us. Uh, good to be together this morning. Uh, there's a black pad there in the pew. If you could sign that, pass that along. Uh, there's also uh, prayer cards. If you have a particular prayer request, please fill it out, and we'll pass that on to our prayer team. Be glad to pray for whatever is on your heart this morning. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. When we were planning out our series on the Gospel, we had to make a decision what to do with chapter 13, where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, I, can someone tell us what page that chapter 13 of Mark is in our Pew Bible? 1017. Encourage you to open it up there. We will be uh, looking at the whole chapter. We had to make a decision how to do this when we were making our preaching schedule. Chapter 13, we have uh, Jesus' longest dialogue in the gospel. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible where all of Jesus' words are in red, you'll notice that all of verses 35 to thir- verse 5 to 37 are in red without interruption. Uh, and so we had to think about how should we plan on preaching this chapter? Well, you know when you were a kid, or maybe still today, uh, when you have to eat all of your vegetables before you can have any dessert? For me, the worst was when my mom made canned peas, right? We couldn't have dessert until we ate all of our peas. Now, my sister's strategy was to eat everything you liked and to save the peas for last, right? And she would take forever with great drama, painstakingly try to finish your peas while all of us had to wait for her before we could have dessert. And that was obviously the wrong strategy, right? The correct thinking was to eat all of your peas first, get it out of the way, and then eat the rest of the food you like. I think that's a biblical way to do it. Uh, I think it's, it's in Proverbs 32. You can look it up. And uh, anyway, when it came to preaching Mark 13, I have to confess I viewed it like eating my canned peas, right? We could take three or four weeks with this text easily, or we could do the whole thing in one sermon and be done with it. Now, you have to understand that preachers, at least Princeton-trained preachers, are intimidated by texts like this. That's why you don't see us doing whole sermon series on the book of Revelation. Texts like Mark 13, where Jesus is talking about the end times, always raise difficult questions that have many answers that many people feel, believe very strongly. And it's easy, easy to get in trouble with a text like this. And so the strategy is to do the whole chapter and that way, if I don't answer all of your questions, I can say it was because it just wasn't enough time, right? <laughs> Not because I didn't know the answers. On top of that kind of foolish thinking, there's been all kinds of foolish preaching on texts like this. These texts on the end of the, end of the age have been abused by preachers for many years with bad results. And so it's just easier, right, to avoid these texts. But all of that is a mistake. This text is given prominence of place and of space in Mark's gospel. It is Jesus' final teaching, his last words. And Mark is known for his pithy style, for his action, for not a whole lot of dialogue. And yet he gives us a whole chapter here on the end times to understand this gospel as well as understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
we have to pay attention to this text. To continue my bad metaphor, the question is, should we read this text in one big bite or take it one P at a time? I'm going to try and do this this morning, one P at a time, if you will. So instead of reading the whole chapter all at once, we'll read it bit by bit, and uh, hopefully that helps us to understand it, hang in there with it better. So begin then, Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. And again, the context here, this is the last week before, uh, Holy Week before Good Friday, before the cross. Jesus has been in conflict. Uh, and uh, as then we're told here in verse 1, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, the temple of, Jesus, of Jerusalem must have been an awesome sight, an awe-inspiring sight. Ancient sources tell us from the first century that at this point in Jesus' life, the temple had been under construction by Herod for 50 years and was still unfinished. The temple grounds were 35 acres, about one-third the size of Duke's East Campus. The temple at its highest point was 15 stories above the Kidron Valley, and the blocks of stone that were used in construction were enormous. Josephus, the first century historian, tells us that some of them were 60 feet in length. And still in today in Jerusalem, there are stones that are left that are 42 feet long by 14 feet wide by 11 feet tall and weigh over a million pounds each. And this was just the retaining wall of the temple grounds. On the south end of the temple compound was what was called Solomon's Porch, which was 45 feet wide and consisted of three aisles supported by four rows of columns, 40 feet high, holding up a cedar-paneled ceiling. And the temple itself was a collage of gold and silver, crimson and purple, and reflected brilliantly the sun as the sun would rise over the Mount of Olives. And even though the disciples had seen this temple many times, they are astounded still. What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. But Jesus is not impressed. This whole last week before the cross, he has not been impressed with the temple. Driving out the money changers, the story of the fig tree that bore no fruit, the days of conflict with all the various religious groups in the temple, all of this led Jesus to declare God's judgment against the temple and the whole temple complex. And then verse 3, they've left the city. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. The disciples asked Jesus two questions. 
When will this be, the destruction of the temple? And what will be the sign that it's about to happen? And Jesus answers the second question first. What will be the sign? And notice how he answers it in verse 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out. Many will try to lead you astray with clear descriptions of how to read the times. Yes, there will be wars, earthquakes, famines, like we see today, like every generation has seen. But he says that's not the sign. That's just the beginning of the birth pains. But it's not the sign. And then continuing in verse 9, you must be on your, go- your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here describes what the believers in Mark's church were experiencing in the first century. Terrible things were happening to them. But he says, don't worry, because you will have the Holy Spirit. Everyone will hate you, but stand firm to the end. These are the verses are the first thing that I think the Lord wants to remind us of this morning. That we should remember that to follow Christ means adversity and suffering. Watch out. Don't be deceived. Be, beware of those who say that following Jesus will be a life of health and wealth. You will never make it to the end if you think that following Jesus will keep you from suffering. It's been many years since I last went to Disney World. The last time I went, I was struck by one thing, and that is here in Disney World, in the Magic Kingdom, how many children were crying? (laughs) And you would see parents trying to comfort their children, and I thought, why would any child ever be crying in Disney World, right? Because we've been told our whole lives that Disney World is the place of magic where everything is perfect and right, and I get to do everything I want to do. And, and, and you get there, right? And the line is too long. We can't do that one ride. Or I want to have the $18 funnel cake, and mom says no, right? <laughs> and the, the magic is suddenly gone, and we're not prepared to face it, right? This is supposed to be fun with no suffering, no pain, no. And so we break down crying. And Jesus is saying to us, being a Christian is not life in the magic kingdom. right? Hardship will come. Be prepared for it. Watch out. Your lives will be hard. Be prepared. Don't be shocked when pain and suffering and persecution comes. I won't protect you from it, but I will be with you through it. And then (laughs) a verse I wish we could skip over this morning. Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination that causes desolation. And it's in quotation marks in, in the NIV here. What is that, right? It's a term that Jesus takes from the book of Daniel. And it was understood in the first century to be that abomination would be the Gentiles conquering Jerusalem, entering the temple, and desecrating the temple with pagan idols and pagan sacrifices in the holy place. 
This is exactly what happened in the second century BC when the Syrian general Antiochus IV entered the temple, erected an altar to Zeus, and offered a sacrifice of a pig on it. The abomination that causes desolation. Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, let the reader understand then, he says, let all these things happen. And this verse, I think, is a pivot for us in this chapter. One of the, the big questions we wonder about with the Gospel of Mark is when it was written, and specifically whether it was written before or after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Romans did indeed desecrate and destroy the temple. And is Mark telling his readers that this is the abomination that causes desolation? The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD was a cataclysmic event for Jews and for Christians. But the description that we'll read here in a moment in verses 15 to 19 differs from what we know historically about that event. Listen then as Jesus goes on to describe verse 15, let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. These verses are describing the end times of the greatest tribulation. Jesus, as he's speaking, is speaking to two different horizons. The first horizon is what the disciples themselves will see in their lifetime, specifically the destruction of the temple that they're looking at from, Mount, from the Mount of Olives. But there's a second horizon, which includes the abomination that causes desolation. And this is the final persecution and tribulation that no one could survive if the Lord didn't cut it short. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in these verses. The abomination that causes desolation for this second ultimate horizon is not some desecration of the temple because the temple has been destroyed already. No, this abomination is best to be understood in light of 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, where Paul describes the man who sets himself up to be God and who brings great persecution on God's people, whom we call the Antichrist. But the point is this. There is no certainty for us in who or what the abomination that causes desolation is. If we knew for certain who it was or what it was, then that would relieve us of the responsibility of waiting and watching. The abomination requires us being wide awake and watchful. Because the way of Jesus is not the way of certain knowledge. Jesus doesn't give us a five-year plan. He says, follow me today. The way of salvation is not gained through knowing all the answers, but by following, by standing firm and persevering. 
as one scholar says, is, is, it is not a way of dispensing with mystery, but of living in mystery. And then Jesus gives us one further sign, verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Jesus is telling us that his return will not be a hidden thing. Everyone will know. We won't have to guess. The sign will be clear. But when it comes, it will be too late to get ready because Jesus will come quickly. Now, in, in verse 28, Jesus gets to their first question. When will this happen? Jesus says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus says that this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. And the question is, what are these things? And here, I believe Jesus is talking about the first horizon, the destruction of the temple that he is looking at with his disciples. He is talking about these things, not about the those days of verse 24 when he will return. When will those days happen? Jesus answers that question in our final P, if you will, verse 32 to 37. Listen again. But about that day, not these days, but that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This too is word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When will that second horizon arrive? We don't know. Jesus himself doesn't even know. Only the Father knows. And this chapter highlights a tension that we live in. Jesus is making sure that we hear clearly what the end of the story will be. We know the ending. Jesus will return and make all things right. No matter how bad things get, no matter how much wicked people get away with, Jesus will come and make all things right. We know the end of the story, but we don't know when it will happen. I could give credit here to Lowry Beecham, who shared with me this thought from C.S. Lewis's book, The World's Last Night and Other Essays. And there, Lewis shares the story from Shakespeare's King Lear about a minor character who isn't even given a name. He is simply servant, first servant. 
All the characters around the first servant think they know the story and how it will end, but they are wrong. The first servant has no idea how the play is going to go, but he is alert to what is happening in this one scene. He sees an abomination. Old Gloucester has both of his eyes gouged out in front of him, and he will not stand it. The servant pulls the sword out and has it pointed at his master's breast in, just, in a moment. He has eight lines that he speaks, but then he is stabbed to death from behind by wicked Princess Regan. What this chapter teaches us is that we have no idea when the play will end. The servant didn't know if he was in act three, that he, that he was in act three of a five-act play. He didn't know if his scene was the end of the play. And we don't either. We don't know if what is happening in Ukraine is the end of the play. And we are all right now eight minutes away from nuclear annihilation. Or are we still in act one? We don't know. What that means, though, is that we need to enter into each scene fully awake. I like the new RSV translation of verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Keep awake. We don't know how the play will go. We don't know when it will end, but we know how it will end. We know the playwright. And because we know the playwright, we don't know how important my scene is. We don't even know who the major characters are. Our playwright loves surprises. He loves the surprise twist. He loves the seemingly unimportant character actually being the most important character, at least in this scene. So keep awake. Alert to what is happening around you and how you are to respond. Keep awake. We don't know when the abomination that causes desolation will come, but the habits we are building now will determine if we are ready to do our part in the Lord's story. The season of Lent is an excellent time for us to build those practices so that we are ready, awake, and watchful. Watch the, there was a basketball game on last night, some of you may know about it, and uh, it's fun to watch basketball with my wife, Kim, because I think just about every game I've watched her, she always says, why don't they make their free throws, right? And she will tell you that the team that makes its free throws is usually the team that wins the game, right? And I thought about that last night as we watched the end of the game and, and uh, you know, would Duke make this miraculous comeback again? And, and Carolina, like, made all of their free throws, right? Now, the point is, when the game is online, you're going to make the free throws. It does not matter how determined you are to make free throws, right? What matters is, have you practiced those free throws thousands and thousands of times? Because if you're really determined but have not practiced, you are not ready. You are not ready. But if you have practiced, and so when the moment comes and the game is online and you have done this literally 10,000 times before, you may not make the free throw. <laughs> but you can have confidence that you will, right? Because I've done this before. And that is our lives today. So then... And I hope this has been better than uh, canned peas this morning. But remember this, right? Our life isn't Disney World. Be ready for hardship. Be on your guard, watching. Not so important to know the details of prophetic fulfillment. We just need to be ready. 
And when we have an abomination that causes desolation, stand against it and keep awake. Awake to our Lord and his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your word to us this morning that you want us to be prepared for the life you have called us to. You don't want us to be surprised. You want us to uh, be able to stand firm with you in this world. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. We pray that you would help us even now to be building the habits, the practices that would enable us to stand firm And Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And we pray that we might do this well together, standing firm together, discerning well together, following you well together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.